Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 4, says, He said to me, this is Ezekiel, um, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to the bones. I will cause breath to enter you so that you will come to life. I will put muscles on you and flesh on you and cover you with skin. Then I will put breath in you so that you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And uh, just reading that this week about how God brings life from death, from hopeless situations. God is a God of resurrection and joy. And uh, we can have hope in that. And that's um, a hope for this new year as we think about what God has in store for us as individuals and families in our church and just trusting that God is, is bringing life. Um, and so we can know that he is faithful to complete what he started in us. On this mountain top, looking just how far you come, knowing that for every step you were with us, kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing every victory was your power is stars and struggles on the Oh! 
joy, our security in our life. We desire that, to delight in you on a daily basis, to walk in your presence. God, when people meet with us, they will know that we've been with you. Oh, Jesus, 
give us a desire and a delight to spend time with you, to know you, to be filled with your presence. Lord, we thank you for who you are and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church, and happy new year. Good to see you guys again. Uh, just a couple of announcements, and then uh, we'll have a bit of a prayer time. Uh, Wednesday Night Live is starting back up this Wednesday, and um, so we're excited about that. We had a lot, uh, you know, at the Christmas in the barn, we handed out a lot of uh, cards or coupons for uh, free meals for Wednesday night, and so maybe we'll see some visitors there. So if you see someone you don't know, um, sit down, make a friend. And, uh, and have a good time. We do need uh, some more help with um, cooking, particularly January 17th. That one's coming up, so if you're available to help out with that, you can um, sign up on the board or talk to Judy uh, if you have any questions. Also, a year-end giving and contributions are available uh, either in your mailboxes or if you're not sure, talk to us and, and we'll get it for you. But um, those, those have gone out. So... We'll have a, a prayer time. Uh, we want to continue to pray for uh, Matt and Monica as they suffered a house fire, as you know, here a couple weeks ago. Uh, and also Tiffany Dick. Um, she's headed back to Mayo for some muscular pain uh, on Wednesday and Thursday for a checkup. And so we just want to pray that, that all goes well there. So let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beginning of a new year. God, thank you for new and fresh beginnings. God, thank you that we always have new beginnings, new opportunities for new beginnings with you. Lord, we continue to pray for Matt and Monica as they recover and rebuild. God, if there are ways that we can serve them, come alongside them, Lord, uh, that we would do so. And we pray for Tiffany just for health and restoration so it's a, a good checkup on Wednesday and Thursday. Lord, many of us know people who are suffering some ailment. Lord, we pray for those people now. Pray for their healing, their restoration. God, thank you for another good morning. Thank you for this community. Thank you for your faithfulness, your grace, your presence. We love you, Jesus. Amen.
Thanks, Carla. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to turn in Nehemiah. We're going to continue in that today. Um, so this is a new year and uh, the beginning of a new year. And New Year's are always fun. Uh, it's a time of new beginnings and, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions and gym memberships and diet plans and uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, one of the fantastic things, though, about being a Christ follower is that we're not limited to a certain holiday where we get to start afresh. One of the things I love about being Christ follower is that we can do this, hey, I need to start over thing, really kind of whenever we want on just most any day that it needs to happen. I mean, uh, so many times, just on a day-to-day basis, we can say, uh, Lord, can we just kind of start over here? Can we begin afresh and begin anew? And so it's such a privilege just that, that we get to do that. And if society wants to carve out one day a year where they do it, that's fine. That's great. We'll roll along with them for that. Um, but just one of the privileges of a Christ follower is that, that we get to do that as a regular basis. And so today we look at revival and we look at new beginnings in the story of Nehemiah. Um, we're, so we've been working through the, the story of Nehemiah, um, a little bit of kind of the big picture. Um, originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were, were one book. They were all together. And within Ezra and Nehemiah, what you have is you have um, Israelites have been taken to captivity. And through Ezra and Nehemiah, you see three waves of exiles returning to the Jerusalem area. And uh, the first wave um, came back about, ooh, I think it was like 120 years before, before Nehemiah does. Um, and uh, uh, under, I think it was Zerubbabel. And, um, uh, and then Ezra bring, br- brings a group back. And then Nehemiah is kind of the, this third um, wave. Um, but his focus is really on building the wall around Jerusalem. And um, so prior, we see the rebuilding of the temple that had been restored. Ezra reestablishes the priesthood and some other things. And then, and then in Ezra. And Nehemiah is just a remarkable book on leadership. Probably one of the, the best that you will find. Um, especially if, if, if you're able to kind of unpack and see some of the, the leadership principles that, that are in there. It's just, it's fantastic. And so we've just been walking through that because all of us in some capacity are either leading or part of a group or of a movement. And so we've watched Nehemiah as he has um, been burdened by, the, by this vision and, and had this holy discontent that there's something that's not right that needs to be corrected. We've seen him risk it all as he goes before the king, uh, who's very temperamental, like bad day with the king and like you're a dead man. And so he goes before the king and risks it all. Then he receives kingdom level endorsement to go back and engage on this. And he comes back and he sees people that are passionate about it and rally around him. And he sees a group of people that oppose him from day one, um, complete with death threats and threats of war and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, Last time that we looked at Nehemiah, we were in the first part of chapter 6, and uh, things had kind of escalated a little bit in that the opponents to Nehemiah uh, had had tried to basically assassinate him different ways. They they tried to kill him physically. Uh, They tried to slander his character, his reputation, and at one point they had it, it, it's a little bit vague, but it looks like they actually hired both a priest and a friend of Nehemiah to bait him into doing things that he shouldn't do to destroy his reputation and his credibility amongst the community. 
And so the guy really has got to be kind of on his toes at, at all times. We're in chapter 6, verses 15. We're going to go through the end of 8, but we're not going to read it all, so just relax. It's good. We're just going to kind of hit, hit some highlights out of here. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 15, the first two verses, this is, this is an amazing point. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And I love this part just in the very beginning where it says that even their enemies recognized that this was something of God. Uh, One of my favorite conversations that that happens in Scripture is actually over in Exodus 33. And it's a really bizarre conversation if you really get into it, right? But the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land. And they've done something wrong and goofed up again. And and I think a bunch of them died. I'm not sure. And uh, God has this kind of unusual conversation with Moses. And God tells Moses, he says, look, I'm going to send you into the promised land. But I'm not going to go with you because you guys keep kind of pushing it. And so I'm actually going to send an angel ahead of you, and he's going to lead you into the promised land. I don't, well, I'm not sure all the theology behind on that. I'm just telling you what it says. And so then Moses, though, has this great response where he tells God, he says, unless you go with us, do not send us up from here. What else will distinguish me and all of your people from all the other people of the face of the earth? And it's this remarkable statement by Moses. Because the place where they were going, like the people were pretty blatantly sinful. Like it shouldn't have been that hard to be distinct. But Moses has this clarity that it's only God and the grace of God that actually makes us distinct. It's, it's, it's a fantastic conversation. But so many times, it is God and His grace and His power and His mercy that's really the only thing that keeps us distinct. From, from the rest of the world um, that gives us that distinction. With God, miracles happen. With God, the impossible happens. And I love stories where people recognize God as the true hero. Uh, and to get this wall accomplished in 52 days, like, that's just not humanly possible uh, for that to have happened. So it, it's really pretty remarkable. This next section here um, is interesting. I'm not entirely sure how to proceed with it, but, 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 but we're going to look at this. Verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. Now, from the very beginning, Tobiah was one of the guys who uh, opposed uh, Nehemiah and the whole rebuilding. Like he, he's, he's like in the top two, top three of people who oppose God, oppose Nehemiah, oppose the project, oppose people's, all, all that stuff. Um, so nobles are sending letters to Tobiah. Tobiah sends letters, and they come to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, the son of Jehonanan, and the taker of the daughter of Meshulam, and the son of Berechiah as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And then catch this, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. 
if, if you've been here for some of the other sermons, you know that from the start, Tobiah is a devout, devout enemy of God. He is a devout enemy of the people of God, and he is a devout enemy of the work of God. From the beginning, he has opposed this project and all who supported it. And, and those, those assassination attempts that, that we saw of Nehemiah just a few verses ago, like he, he was into his elbows up in that. But he was well-connected. He had an influential position. He had married into the right family, or at least he had marriage family connections. We have a whole list of names. I'm not really sure how all they're significant, but they're, they're very significant. Um, so Tobiah was well-established, well-connected, influential family. And because of that, the people of God failed to distance themselves from him the way that they should have done. Tobiah directly opposes God's will for the people, but the people refuse to, to distance themselves. And the thing is, <laughs> this is, in some ways, many ways, like this is quintessential small town and small church. Now, lest you think I'm like hinting about anyone in this room, I'm not, okay, just relax. <laughs> I'm, I'm not egging for anybody here. But you read it in the books, you hear it in the stories, sometimes you even see it around you. Um, just the stories that, that you hear and witness and read about, there's that, that one guy, that one gal, everybody knows that they're just, they're a grouch, they're a complainer, they're, they're never happy, they never help, they always oppose, sometimes they're borderline abusive, but then church leaders will then like, well, we're just going to slow down, we're going to hold off, you know, we're going to wait a while, we're, we're maybe not going to do it this year. You know, because so-and-so is going to get really upset if we do this. And, you know, they're going to raise a fuss about it. And what you will often see is that in small communities, i.e. small churches and, and small towns, we will often place relationship, or more accurately, like, unruffled feathers of family, over a lot of stuff. And sometimes over, over everything. And... And, and don't get me wrong on this. The value of relationship is a fantastic strength. But when unruffled relationship takes precedence over God's will for either my family or for the church or for the community, then what we're actually saying by our actions is that offending that person is more grievous than offending God. Or being obedient to God even. And here's the other thing in this. Whatever gets final say in your life, that's actually the functional God you worship. Whatever gets final say in your life, that's the God we worship. It has the power to decide what we do or what we don't do. So the question then becomes, is who or what is calling the shots in my life? Because that's our functional God. So we feel... You know, we, we really think that God is wanting us to do this, but, you know, um, okay, I had typed in Uncle Bob, but I'm, I don't, does anyone have an Uncle Bob? I hope not. Like, that's supposed to be anonymous. We don't have any Bobs here, do we? Okay, at least, not trying to name anyone, people. <laughs> so that, you know, that uncle, right, okay, he's going to get upset, so we're not going to do it. 
well, then, okay, then he, in many ways, is actually your functional God because he got to call the final shots, right? Okay, we feel God calling to do this, but, ah, we just don't have time. Okay, now, worship of time, then, is actually your functional God or other events that you're letting take precedence. Oh, you know, we really think that God is calling us to do this, but, and we even have the money, but we just don't want to spend the money. Okay, then money, then, is actually your functional God or love of money because that's getting to call the shots in your life, right? Well, you know, we, we really want God, we really think God is calling to do this. We're just not sure how the public is going to respond. Okay, then your own self-image is your God, right? Are, are, are you guys tracking with me here, right? The, the, the people surrounding Nehemiah failed to separate themselves from someone who's very clearly an enemy of God and the projects of God because he was well-connected, influential family. Uh, an interesting story for you. Um, I, I think most small-town uh, small churches, I think ours included, would be mortified if someone sued us, if someone took us to court. Um, the church where I, I was able to do and get some biblical counseling conference, they have some amazing kingdom projects going on. I mean, they have this remarkable biblical counseling center they've got a waiting list of like i think it was 60 names community people no church affiliation they had never advertised who are coming to get free biblical counseling at the church they had like 15 to 20 biblical counselors every monday night they had housing for the elderly they had a residential drug rehab program they had a christian school they had a community center complete with a gym and daycare and all that kind of stuff. They're not even that big of a church, but they just have some of these remarkable community projects going on. And their leader once commented, he does not remember a time where they did not have an ongoing lawsuit against the church or one of the various ministry organizations. There were like 16 different ministry organizations that were all partnering somehow. Tobias, in the community, resisting the things of God, attempting to use the court system to stop or impede what God was doing through that church. Um, a few things on this. One is that I am just as guilty or susceptible uh, of this as the next person. The more I get to know you, the harder it is to preach. Because we work through some of these passages and I go, oh, that's going to kind of sting for some people right? Like when you don't know the people, it's great. You can say whatever you want. And like, they don't care because you know, you're not trying to call them out. Like there's just kind of this agreed upon animity that I'm just saying this stuff, but I don't know how it affects you. I'm just saying it right. But as you get to know people, preaching gets a lot harder because you know that for some people on some topics, like that's going to sting a bit, you know? And so there's this temptation to just kind of go soft on, on certain things or to skip certain things. Secondly, like th we, we also got to recognize that there's a huge difference between Bob again. I'm, I'm picking on Bob. If Bob ever joins our church, I'm going to have to find a, a new straw man. If, but there's a difference between like Bob, who's like, he's a little bit abrasive, but like he loves Jesus. He has wisdom. We should hear him out versus, you know, Bob who just gets upset easily. His default position is opposition. He's actively seeking to undermine leadership. He's actively seeking to undermine certain ministries. He's continuing in unrepentant sin. Like, there's a big difference between those two, okay? Like, we're, we're not talking personality here. We're talking, like, kingdom agenda. 
So, anyways, something for us to recognize, to recognize the, the, the Tobias, we can still love them, but we just recognize that in some situations, certain people don't get to call the shots. Jesus is our God, and so we look to him for final say. The next section in, in Nehemiah, um, really pretty much all of chapter 7, uh, there's some more instructions. There's a long list of names. We're going to skip that. I'm not going to read that to you. Uh, but what I would say that is so fantastic about this is that it is this kind of material that gives such incredible weight to Nehemiah as a historical document, as a, his, uh, as a credible historical document. You see it other places in Scripture. It's just, it's remarkable. So we're super glad that, that it's in there, but we're just, we're not going to read it or, or, or preach through it. The next section I find amazing. Uh, chapter 8. Verse, uh, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they, like, that's an actual gate. That's not a political reference. Um, They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So, so people gather at, at one of the city gates. What's interesting is that they didn't gather in the temple. They had a temple, a nice shiny new temple. They didn't gather in the temple. But see, the thing with the temple is that there's different courts and there's different, different levels of access. And so only certain people could get to that inner, inner access. The gate, anyone can meet. You can all gather there. It's a, it's a public place. And so the men, the women, and all who could understand. So they're probably talking children who are, who are old enough to gather, all gather for, for, for the reading of Scripture. Also, it says that, that they started early morning and they went until midday. So they had like a six to seven hour church service. So, you know, I'm just saying. Like 11.30, 11.45 isn't that bad, right? Because we could be here till five. So you're welcome, I guess. Would, would be would be one thing but there's there's this hunger for god's truth like people don't sit through six to seven hours of church unless there is a legitimate hunger for god for the words of god for the things of god for for what it is that god wants of, of our lives. and so they show up they're they're ready to, to hear this and later on we're actually going to see that this leads to revival revival starts when people hear Scripture, when they understand Scripture, salvation requires that people hear the truth of Scripture when Scripture is taught and explained and when it's given its rightful place as God's truth spoken to us. Um, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is active, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuke, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's interesting is that when that verse was written, really they only had the Old Testament. Uh, The New Testament was still being written. So when he talks about all scripture is God-breathed, he's talking about Old Testament and prophetically about the New Testament that is still in the process of, of being written. Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? Question mark, answer, by living according to your word. 
You know, one of the biggest debates that I see emerging in Christian circles, very simply, is whether or not Scripture is true. I see it in Christian circles, and I see it in in MV circles. And one of the common arguments that, that you're encountering more and more, especially around New Testament authors, like, I mean, there's various versions of it, but basically it goes like this, culture, 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 so it doesn't apply to us. Like, that's... That we have all kind of shiny versions of that, but that's that's basically what what is happening. And actually, then what is wrapped up in that then is that me, as this bright, enlightened person, two thousand years after Christ, am actually in a better place to understand and interpret and apply the life and teachings of Jesus than these silly people like Paul and Peter, who are just so wrapped up in their environment that their words don't really apply to us, and so I can better look at the words of Jesus and apply them and, and, and live them out. And that kind of thinking places us in authority over Scripture with editorial powers over uncomfortable passages. It says that we know better than Scripture. It's, compl- it, it's, the, it's arrogant. It's completely misleading. At times, I think it's borderline demonic. Right, so we have just be alert for this, because because this is a, a growing debate, it is basically this this underlining thing of is scripture true, or not. Verses four to eight, carrying on. Um, I'm going to skip some of these names. Um, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood a lot of great. People who we assume love Jesus. Um, and then in verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. They had this raised platform. As he opened it, all the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord and, and the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads. They worshiped the Lord with faces to the ground. Verse 7, a lot of great men who also love Jesus. Um, catch this. Help the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. What's probably happening here is they've built this platform. Remember, these people have no sound system, so they're having to yell everything. Um, even in a room this big, I would destroy my voice, having to yell for 30 minutes. Remember, this is a six to seven hour church service. What you probably had was you had Ezra and about 13 other guys on stage who took turns reading from the scripture because they're having to yell it to like thousands of people at the water gate out just kind of on the countryside. But then you have these other people who are scattered throughout who helped the people understood and and gave them a sense of the scripture so that they understood what was going on. And and, and, and what what the thinking is, or what they think what what was happening here, is that you would have one group of people stand on the platform and read. But then scattered throughout the audience, you had these other men who would literally gather together a a group of people, because it says all all the people stood in place, and, and they would they'd go out amongst the people and they would help them under, understand what was being said. I mean, it's almost like a sermon-based small group or, or, or like a Sunday school. So something would be read, and then these, these guys would go like, 
Okay, like, did everyone get that? Like, do you have any questions? I, okay, uh, oh, you missed that part. Well, the, here is what he said. Okay, oh, that's a good question. Let's respond to that. And so they would interact with the group, and then kind of when everyone's good, you know, I'll be like, hey, we're good here, Ezra. You know, you can go to the next section. And so then when Ezra gets like 13 thumbs up, he knows that, that, that he can read again from scriptures. And so then they read, and then all these men would be out in the groups of people once again, hey, do you, do you understand? Did you catch that? You know, are you, we're, we're good. All right, we're good. We're, we're ready for the next section, Ezra. For six to seven hours, they, they did this. And, and you had these men um, working amongst the people. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this, is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. This whole process has led to this deep conviction, just deep sorrow and deep brokenness before the Lord over their own sin. Paul tells us in the New Testament that the law brings death. It brings awareness of sin. And that's why we're so thankful for Jesus, because Jesus brings life. Jesus fulfills the law. It is good, honestly, every so often, to shed a few tears and just to experience that deep sorrow and that brokenness over our sin. That's not not something that that, that we manufacture. But just when when we understand Scripture and, and our brokenness before the Lord, and our understanding and our appreciation of grace... Like, we're, we're really only thankful for the things that we're aware of that we have been saved from. And so if we only think that we've been saved from, like, two or three things, then our thankfulness is like, yeah, I'm mostly thankful. But if we have this deep awareness of all of the, the, the sin that we have been saved from, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful. I'm very, very thankful. I, the, you know, I, I don't think we... Well, yeah, we, we, we really don't have a, a full awareness of what we have been saved from and a full awareness of what we have been saved unto. Like, we are just working with extremes that are beyond our comprehension. Last section uh, that I want to talk about. Um, verse 13. Love this verse. Nehemiah eight thirteen On the second day. So they had this amazing church service day one. Okay, next day. The second day. The heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And, then, and I'm not going to read it for you, but what happens then is they study the, 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 the word together and they realize that there's other, some things they should have done. And so there's some feasts and so they have this party and, and they implement uh, some other, other stuff in their life. But, but basically what you have is, so day one they have this amazing time of repentance But then the heads of the clans, or the family leaders, gathered to study even more. They met with Ezra, the other priests. They studied the scripture from that discovered, like, more things that they should be doing. And so then they went out and did them. And I love this because basically we see the heads of the families, husbands, fathers, learning scripture so as to better lead their families. And then doing it. And so husbands and dads... It is our responsibility to teach and lead our families. And I am 
increasingly convinced that we are to create the culture in our own home. That that, that is on our shoulders to create the culture that, that, is, that is in our home. It is our responsibility to lead a Christ-centered life and then to help those in our family do the same. So let me tell you two terrifying things. First, as near as I can tell, all the evidence suggests that the husband is held responsible for the sins of the couple. Like, there's some individual responsibility. Don't get me wrong. But there's also this sense that the husband is held responsible for the sins of the couple. Because one, you see multiple times in Scripture where those in positions of leadership are held to a higher standard in their judgment. And you also see Scriptures establish the husband as leader of the home. But secondly, this entire thing is reinforced and played out with Adam and Eve. Eve Eve ate the the, the fruit first, right? (laughs) Then Adam ate it. But when God shows up, the first person he calls out is Adam. If you go back and look, he walks into the garden, and he calls out Adam, and says, like, what's going on here? And then all throughout the New Testament, you see the sin of the couple laid at Adam's feet. Never Eve's. Even though she ate it first, the sin of the couple is laid at Adam's feet. So you have a responsibility, and I believe we're going to be held accountable to that responsibility. Um, Secondly, um, uh, Matt Chandler is is the pastor of this mega church with like tens of thousands, short little video clip that he had. He cited some research. I was unable to to find this research and and confirm this, so there's a little bit of a question mark just in that I I haven't been able to, to confirm this research. But, but what he was saying is, is that the, the studies are now showing that children don't abandon their faith in college. For kids that do abandon their faith, they, they don't do it in college. They actually do it at home. It's just that they don't really have the freedom to do so until college. And what they have found, though, is that there's this really strong connection between half-hearted commitment to Christ by the parents will often result in full-blown rebellion by the kids. What he was saying is that, is, is that, uh, that, according to the research that they found, is that half-hearted commitment by parents leads to full-blown rebellion in the kids. So dads, when you're like, meh, about Christ and Scripture and God's kingdom and His glory and the community of believers, it is most likely that your kids will walk away from Christ completely. And then probably the generations after that as well, too. So, Dad, generations of people whom you love may not know Christ because you took a nonchalant attitude towards Jesus. And I think the responsibility is going to get laid at, at your feet. In Nehemiah, the dads learned scriptures so they could lead their families better. Um, and I believe that, that we're responsible for creating the, the culture in our own home. Great quote from Craig Rochelle. As a leader, train yourself to never gripe about what you allow. Never complain about something you tolerate. You are the leader. Lead to the desired result. So dads, if it's true that you create in the culture uh, in your home and your home lacks joy... Don't complain about it. Lead towards the desired result of joy. Lead in that direction. Uh, If your home lacks scripture reading or knowledge of scripture, don't complain about it. Lead to the desired result. 
if your home lacks church involvement, don't complain about it, lead to the desired result. If your home lacks affirmation, don't complain about it, lead to the desired result. Like, I mean, we could just keep going on and on. So this January, I was planning to uh, get away for a day or two, um, just for myself, for some church stuff, just think through the next year, work on kind of some vision, ideas, that kind of thing for myself and the church. Uh, I was going to go to this awesome retreat center in Schuyler that I love, uh, but then I read this, and it messed up my life, and so um, I'm going to do something different. (laughs) Because not only is this something that I need to do as pastor, but just husbands and dads is something we all need to do. So on Saturday, I think it's Saturday the 13th, whatever, this upcoming Saturday, I'm going to come to church. I'm going to get a breakfast pizza and a bunch of donuts, and I'm going to make coffee. And I'm inviting the gentleman to join me. If we need to order more breakfast pizza, that's fine. If I'm on my own to tackle that thing, I think I'm up for the challenge. Um, either way, I'm going to be here. Um, it be great to have you guys show up. And we'll just dream, brainstorm, what does the next year look like, figure out the right questions to ask. Part of success is just having the right questions. Um, compare notes, set some goals, eat some donuts, and just kind of prayerfully consider how to lead in this next year. Super informal, super chill, come and go when you want, but I'll be here between 8.30 and noon. I may or may not have food for you, uh, depending on when you arrive. But there'll be coffee. So, anyways, that's going on. In the first half of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah lead the building of the wall. In the second half of Nehemiah, in many ways, we're going to see Nehemiah lead the building of the people. Um, Because we actually see that the vision... Like, the vision started out around the wall, but really only the first half of the book is dedicated to the wall. Whereas throughout the first half, and really definitely in the second half, you see this investment in the people. Uh, They start with Scripture. What does Scripture say? They incorporate good teaching. How do we apply this to us? Uh, They go to church as a family so that everyone who can understand has a chance to understand. Leadership is amongst the crowd, making sure people are understanding properly. As they hear the scriptures, the convictions of their sins grieve them. They feel the weight of their sin. And Ezra speaks comfort into their situation. We, we didn't even get into that, but they, they, yeah, they just speak great comfort into that. And then the husbands, the fathers, they gather to do additional study to learn how to lead their families better. This is how you have revival. This is how you have new beginnings. And this is something that we can do, so let's do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for new beginnings. Thank you that with you there's always the opportunity for new beginnings. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for the continued relevancy of Scripture. God, thank you for this group of people that loves you, serves you, desires to follow you. And Lord, this morning, we just once again just rededicate our lives to you. And God, as we prayerfully consider 2018 lord that our dreams and our vision would be inspired by you and a desire to lead christ-centered lives and to create a home where others can flourish and have christ-centered lives and to serve and love our community well thank you jesus for this time together we love you lord amen you are dismissed